Well, if you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to the Epistle of the Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 3, page 828 in your church Bibles. Ephesians chapter 3. And in just a second or two, we're going to begin reading verse 14. Good. I was wondering if you were going to actually turn to your Bible since no one actually sat on the floor today. So thank you. It's very encouraging. <laughs> All right. Verse 14. For this reason, Paul says, I kneel before the Father from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know that this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever Amen. All right, let's pray together. God and Father, uh, I know I need to ask you to help us all, God, grasp the immensity of this prayer. And in that, I realize the frailty, God, of my own mind and my own weaknesses, of my vocabulary to conceive and to um, communicate the splendor and the beauty contained in these verses. And so, Father, I'm wholly dependent upon the Holy Spirit to take my words from your word, give them wings to fly into all our minds. And we pray that in order that we will know that what we have heard from this word is your voice. And then, God, applying that truth, we've learned, else we haven't learned it at all. And so we're going to need everything. And thank you that you're not surprised, but as we just sang, you're a good father, and we're looking forward to the help that you will give now for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, by most accounts, was one of the best expositors of the 20th century, and on the verses that I just read, he, he wrote this, I confess freely that I do not recall in my preaching ministry having dealt with anything in the scripture where I have been as conscious of my inadequacy and my inability as this particular passage. This is hard to understand, even harder to grasp. And if you don't know anything about the preaching ministry of of Martin Lloyd-Jones, then let me just say you should be very humbled by that statement because what he says, I say like a thousand times more. Indeed, what do you do, for example, with verse 19? Do you see it there if your Bible's open? To know this love which surpasses knowledge. I mean, I'm not trying to pick a fight with Paul, but how is that possible? How can we know a love that surpasses knowledge? A love that surpasses our ability to know. How can we know the unknowable? So, I want to begin by just offering one word, if you would, of encouragement. And the encouragement is, this is a prayer. 
So Paul is asking God to do this. Get that right up front. God to do this. Why? Because we can't do this to ourselves, which means the strength of this prayer being answered is all on God. This is a work of God. Now, if you're listening, that's great news. The whole prayer is predicated on the indwelling triune God to do what is needed. Now, one of the things you do when you, when you prepare to preach, you, some, you use commentaries. And one of the things I just noticed that a lot of commentaries forgot that it was a prayer. And as it explained it, it was just trying to say, okay, you got to do this to the person. You got to do this. You got to do what, what you're going to ask God to do. And that doesn't make sense to me because this is a prayer. And I thought about it. I thought that so much of what is preached from, from pulpits is nothing more than a, kind of an updated version of, of um, mid 20th, 20th century Protestant liberalism. And all I want to say about that is it's basically what that is, is you need to do this and here, here's how you should do it. And, oh, by the way, we figured out a new way for you to be a better, more awesome ex. And here's your list. Now go to it. That's not this. This is all on God. Spurgeon. On this. And the application of it. What? He's acting like he's God. Me not help you? Fear not, if, if there were an ant at the door of your granary asking for help, it would not ruin you to give that little ant a handful of your wheat, just so you are nothing but a tiny insect at the door of my all-sufficiency. I myself will help you. Oh, my soul, bring your empty pitcher here. That's the key, right? It has to be empty. Bring your empty pitcher here. Surely I will fill it. Hasten, gather up all your needs and bring them here, your emptiness, your woes, your troubles, your sins. The eternal God is your helper. So what I want to say right off the bat is you should know that your leaders are praying this prayer for you on a regular basis, almost daily, which means God is at work to answer this prayer for Jesus' sake on your behalf. Well, that to me is like really, really good news. So let's just dive right into it. We have four questions in light of the text. And if you have a worship folder, you'll see them there. Why does Paul pray? How does Paul pray? To whom does Paul pray? And what does Paul pray? Why, how, to, what? Number one, what does Paul pray? Well, to answer that, we can see in verse 14, he says, for this reason. Okay? So that means we have to look up a little bit further to verse 1. And Paul says there, for this reason... I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of the Gentiles. But then, I mean, you notice that he kind of leaves us hanging in the air. You're waiting for a verb which never comes. And he kind of changes the subject and talks about himself. Which means we need to go back a little bit further to find out the reason why Paul is praying what he said in verse 14. And that answer is in the first two chapters of, of this letter. Because in the first two chapters, what Paul says is that God in his sovereign grace is bringing all kinds of people, lost Jews and lost Gentiles, together, God's doing this to form a new humanity. A new race of people, if you would, reconciled to God through the blood of Christ shed on the cross. So these are people in Christ. People in Christ who now travel together down the narrow path that leads to life. And here's the key. The finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross is the basis of their peace. So this is a living, given peace. 
And loved ones, that is basic Christianity. Christ at the cross has made a unity between all the conflicting elements of what it meant to be a Jew and what it meant to be a Gentile, their old life, and Jesus broke down the barriers which had been between them, giving them his new life. And it's not just first century Jews and Gentiles, but all people for all time. So what you should say to yourself is Christianity proper is, if you would, multicultural. It's a cosmopolitan. It's not insular. It's not inward looking. It definitely isn't regional and narrow. Christ at the cross put to death nationalistic barriers, behavior burials, personal, regional, skin color, age, preference, financial, appearance barriers, all those things which throughout history has separated human beings. You don't look like me. You don't talk like me. Your color is different. Your, your, your region and the whole way you do life there, we don't do it over there. And if you think about that, if you're prone to make fun or to look down or to struggle with your brothers and sisters in Christ because of their skin color, because of their way of life, or their body shape, or their clothes, or their accent, why in the world would you do that? Why would you do that? Because what Paul says in chapter 2, he makes this amazing statement. I'm going to read it for you, beginning in verse 19. You can flip it there. This is true now as it was just as it's true for the Ephesians. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord, and in him, you too are being built together to become together a dwelling which God lives by his spirit. In other words, your, your traits are not your fate, right? There, there, there is a fate beyond your traits. It's being fashioned to the image of God, and now you're at peace with your brothers and sisters. So Jew and Gentile living together in the first century, the person would go, are you kidding me? There was a stone on the wall in the temple in Jerusalem with the inscription that forbidden any Gentile to go any further into the temple only under pain of death. And yet now they're together in church, serving each other, loving each other, a dwelling place where God lives by his spirit. How in the world does that happen? Jesus. And that's why Paul prays what he prays in verses 14 and following. Here's the issue. He prays for God to give them spiritual maturity, implied in their conversion, which develops as they are the dwelling place for God himself. So he prays because he wants God, no, again, God to give his power to them to be what they are, the new humanity. And just to see how vital that is, because we're tempted to go, okay, cool, I want to be better, that's great. Look how vital that is, chapter 3, verse 10. This is how important it is that the Christian is the dwelling place in God's plan in history. God's intent was that now through the church, okay, so we could say through West Coast Chapel, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known, now hold on to your hats, to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. So Paul is like, listen, believers, everything you do as individuals and as a church family matters. So for example, the fact that you're here this morning, that matters because you are a showpiece to the powers and authorities in the heavenly realms, the, the, the unseen part of creation, the demons, the spiritual forces of evil. You are a showpiece to them, and, and they are seeing, look, they're looking at you, 
and they're watching you and they watch how you live and it all matters. So as you came to church this morning, it mattered. As you sang God's praise in spirit and truth, it mattered. It's a display to the unseen world of God's glorious power in God's gospel pan. In other words, look what God is doing. Look what God is doing. The church is is the theater of God's grace, which the unseen world sees the magnificence and the awesomeness of God. Now, that means, and this is true, every worship service is a cosmic event. You ever thought about that? It is a cosmic event. Our lives as we live before the unseen world is a cosmic event. It's way beyond what we see. And as we live out the gospel in the unseen world, the unseen world is staggered. Not by us, but the amazing power of God. The amazing faithfulness of God. That God still is with us in light of the way we are. And they are stunned that God, chapter 2, verse 1, he brought us out of death in our transgressions and sins into the place we are this morning. We are the children of God. We're filled with the Holy Spirit. We're righteous in Christ. And we're, we're living in harmony with each other through the blood of Jesus. So Paul writes in chapters, or excuse me, chapter 3, verses 14 to 21, what he writes is perfectly declared purpose of God for his people. God wants us to be a showcase on display for the world, both seen, okay, we get that, but also the unseen world. If you like, Paul is praying that we will be self-monitors and how we carry ourselves, not just in front of each other, but to that invisible world. He wants the logical outcome of God's grace in Jesus to be displayed. We went from being people who were dead to now chapter 4 verse 1. You see it there? Now because of God we're completely humble and gentle. That's where we're headed. Patient. Bearing in one, one another in love. Verse 29. No unwholesome talk. No brawling. No slandering. Every intent we might have by nature to cause other people pain and injury or distress. Verse 31. Malice. We abandon it. So Paul prays what God intends for the church. As God revealed from his word. So, so if you want to be good, you know, ask yourself, why do you want to be good? Okay, so some people want to be good because, you know, I heard somewhere that if I do good stuff, then God's going to do good stuff. So if I'm good to God, then God's going to be good to me. The more good I am, the more stuff and good I get. And God will bless me. Is that it? So you're going to make your quest for holiness all about you? Or how about this one? I don't want to embarrass myself. Well, I understand that. No one wants to embarrass themselves. But again, is it all about you? Paul says, God wants us to be the dwelling place of chapter 2, verse 22, his spirit. Chapter 3, verse 10, to be a showcase to his glory, to the spiritual powers and authorities. He wants us to make allowances, chapter 4, verse 1 and following, to shake the cosmos, if you would. To shake the unseen world with gospel realities. Remember 1 Peter, it says the angels long to know this gospel truth. No wonder. So loved ones, if you pray, plunge yourself into these kind of prayers. Listen to Stott, John Stott, Bible reading and your prayers go together because it's the scripture where God reveals his will to us and it is in prayer where we ask God's will to be done. 
Number one, why does Paul pray? Paul prays because he wants God's people to enter into God's will, revealed in the scripture, and give a revelation of who God is and what's God doing in the world in our lives. Number two, then, how does Paul pray? Well, you see it there, verse 14, he prays on his knees. Now, he's not saying that the only, that's the only way to pray. It's not. People pray in the Bible standing. People pray in the Bible bowing. People pray in the Bible prostrating. There is even a lady who prayed in the Bible dancing. Kneeling here represents an exceptional degree of earnestness. This is, this is great passion on Paul's account. So Solomon knelt at the consecration of the temple. Jesus knelt when he was in the garden before the cross. And the point here is this is a place of his heart. His kneeling is revealing what is taking place in his mind and in his heart. Paul is imploring God. He's honoring God. He's jealous for God's glory, not just in the world, but in the cosmos. So this is intense. And it's deep. He needs God to do this. Okay, so again, this is not about us. Not the outcome, yes, but not here. Okay, so why does Paul pray? Well, to display the glory of God and the gospel of Christ in the lives of God people to the seen and unseen world. How does he pray? Well, he prays on his knees. He's earnest. He's serious. He's sincere. To whom does he pray? Well, you see it there, verse 14. The Father. Just like Jesus taught, right? When you pray, say, Father. Verse 14. I kneel before the Father from whom his whole family and in heaven on earth derives its name to staggering truths. One, Paul is reminding us that Father is the Christian name for God, right? So God's not a banker. He's not a miser. He's not my coach. Not like that. In fact, I hate when people say that. But anyway, that's just me. He is my Father. He's my Father. And only the Christian can have God as their Father. Now, I know that not all of us have had a great earthly Father. And if that's you, I can't tell you how sorry I am about that. My heart breaks for you. It's so just a challenge to live in this world with, with not a good father. And some of you might have had fathers that weren't very generous and weren't very happy. And I'm sorry about that. And some of us have no fathers at all to raise us. And I'm doubly sorry about that. However, every Christian, every Christian has God as their father. God is the perfect definition of fatherhood. If you like, God is the mother of all fathers. He's a good, good father. And Paul is counting on God to help his helpless children in need of their father's help. So when you pray, do you pray to God as your father? I was doing heavy research this week. And I came across the actress Melanie Griffith. That's her name. And I found that she has an online blog. But anyway, it was heavy research. Very spiritual. But anyway, this is what she says about prayer. Dear inner self, this is her prayer. If it is your will, please reveal to me in a dream the secret of my success in order to become closer to you. With love and respect, Melanie. (laughs) So the dear woman prays to herself. However, by contrast, the Christian has this incredible privilege to know that we're not talking to ourselves when we pray, ourselves when we pray. We're talking to our Father. That's the first staggering truth. The second truth, verse 15, 
that death does not separate us from his fatherly care. The father of his whole family in heaven and on earth. So when death comes knocking, nothing rocks the fatherhood of God. Whether on earth or in heaven, living or dying, I am in relationship with my father, Hosea 11.1. He loves me. He calls me his child. He, He taught me to walk. He takes me in his arms. That's who I pray to. So do you know how comforting that is? When a couple of weeks ago, I was watching my mom on the bed, and she is suffering, and she's moaning and growing, and I, I know that God is her father. So I'm praying, but she's still moaning, Right? And so it's so comforting to know that God is her father. And this is not paybacks, you know, for something she's done five years ago, ten years ago. This is how life is for a lot of people in Christ in a fallen world. So my father wasn't holding back mercy. And I didn't say in my mind, where are you, God? I said in my mind, this is life. And actually I kind of said to myself, get ready, Joe, because this could be you. So we don't come to God trembling and in dread like some messed up earthly dad who wants to you know, show us how tough he is. And we don't come to God like pagans do to their idols until we have gifts in hand and we have promises in hand and we're going to play God. Let's make a deal. So we're going to appease God and secure some benefit from God with our negotiations. No, we come in Christ's name as a child of God. And we say, I have a tender, loving, truthful father, and he's concerned about me, and he's compassionate with me, and he's so accepting with me. And when I'm faithless, he is so faithful, and that's unbelievable because that's my God who is my father. And loved ones, listen, please. I have to say things like this. Do not let the things of of time or the station in your life, whether you have a lot or whether you have a little or high post or low post, don't let any of that ever make you doubt the love of your Father in heaven. And when you say, Father, your will be done, just let it bring relief and release. Okay, why does Paul pray? He wants the beauty and the power of the gospel to be revealed to the seen and unseen world. How does he pray? This is heartfelt. He's on his knees whom does God, Paul pray to? Well, Father, his Father in heaven. Finally, and we're only going to go through verse 16 and 17, what does Paul pray? Now, I want you to know, you can look here, and you can look all through the epistles. Paul never prays for material success or personal success for the Christians. None of Paul's prayers ever do. He prays here to God twice. Verse 16, I pray that out of your glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through the Spirit and your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That's sanctification. Then Lord willing, next time we'll do verse 18, that you may have power together with every saint everywhere to grasp the width, length, height, depth of the love of Christ. That's justification. Now, when you hear the word power, you should immediately ask, okay, where from and what for, right? Because Christians are not into power, we're into service. By nature, power means, you know, control, freedom, to have our own way, and so on. We're like, no, no, we want Jesus' way. Acts chapter 8, you guys who work through Acts in the Bible, um, Bible group this, or Sunday by Sunday. Remember Simon the sorcerer? And he boasted that he was someone great, and when he saw the great power of the Holy Spirit, he's like, boy, I got a whole wad of money. I'm going to give me some of that power. I want some of that power. No. That's not the kind of power Paul is praying for. Verse 16, the power of the Holy Spirit that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. 
Okay, so some people might ask, well, isn't Christ already in our hearts if we're Christian? Absolutely. Romans 8, Acts 1 and 2, 1 Corinthians 12, uh, Galatians uh, 3. Okay, but here's the key. It's in two fronts. First phrase, out of his glorious riches. I want you to think with me. For a wealthy person to give from their wealth is simply give something, a portion of their wealth, some part of it. But that God gives out of his wealth means he gives everything. As in chapter 1, verse 3, every spiritual blessing in Christ. And he keeps giving everything because he never runs out of power. That's what the, is so mind-boggling about this. So you have the infinite power of the Holy Spirit giving every spiritual blessing from the infinite Christ to finite Christians in time. That's what's happening here. Paul is praying for God's measureless, endless power to be given to his children so that, okay, now hold on to your hats because you're like, oh, yeah, careful. Verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. And this is not some kind of uh, Christian mysticism. I felt Jesus. Did you feel him? Or you don't feel him? Well, do you have him? The word dwell means to make a home. That's the key word here. And this is not Jesus, you know, as a sleepover. This is Jesus moving in. And anytime a person moves into your home, things have to change. So Jesus begins to rip up the carpet of your life. He repaints the walls, updates the appliances. In short, he's making a house his home. Now, there's so much in our lives which we are very comfortable with. But our new owner has much better taste. And he has much better standards than we do. And in every age and stage in our life, he keeps lovingly updating things. In other words, this is a continuous remodel. Paul then is praying for holiness. The right way. Christ-centered, God-glorifying holiness. So this is not just morality for morality's sake. This is Christ-centered, God-exalting holiness. Therefore, Jesus keeps carefully stripping away all the displeasing things in our life, and he gradually makes a dwelling place which is appropriate for him. So our home, if you would, the home of our heart begins to reflect his character. A home that sees everything as he sees it increasingly. So that home can do everything as he would do it increasingly. So again and again in our life, this is continuous to our last breath. The scaffolding has to go up. What we thought wasn't a problem is a problem. And Jesus wants to fix it. And so you see holiness, sanctification, verses 16 and 17. That's what Paul is praying for. And the good news is, is because he's talking to God going to happen. God is, is on this journey, if you would, in Christ to keep working out his holiness in our life. One, even when we're ready to give up. Two, he is far more concerned and committed to our sanctification than we are to our sanctification And three, he is working on it right now even when we are not even interested in it. And loved ones, when Jesus Christ moves into any of our lives, he finds it in a place of terrible despair. 
And if you don't see yourself that way, it's because you don't see your sin. And it takes a great deal of power, God's power, to change us. And that's why Paul prays what he prays. This is Sinclair Ferguson. The Christian who does not know their own sinfulness and darkness of their own heart is a juvenile in the Christian faith. So you see yourself apart from Christ and you weep. You see yourself in Christ and you rejoice. Sin is indeed always in us and godly people feel it. But godly people know it's covered. So as Christ dwells in our heart through the Spirit, over time we put more and more of our trust in him. So Christ, if you would, increasingly indwells in us. He takes residency in more and more in the rooms of our house. And that's why Paul says what he says. See it there, verse 17, through faith, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So you see the mechanism by which the spirit of Jesus does this divine act of remodeling is through our faith in him. Now stop. So you're going to say, well, does that up to me? Listen, that's why Paul prays what he prays. Verse 16, out of God's glorious riches, God may strengthen you. God's dominating strength, it's a Greek word, kratos, uh, his prevailing power. So Christ will dwell sanctification increasingly in your heart through faith. So if you're with me, as you trust him, and we demonstrate our trust by our obedience, this is God giving us his riches, verse 16, and this is God strengthening us in our inner being because any part of our sanctification is solely, let me say it like this, if any part of our sanctification is only based on us, we are doomed. This is the foundation of your sanctification. So brothers and sisters, we need to ask God to give us this kind of faith. We need to ask God to let Christ dwell in our hearts in every part of our life. Pray that we'll not go back to our old ways. A throwback, if you would, to our former life. I don't want jealousy. I don't want hate. I don't want lust. I don't want bitterness. I don't want egotism, ignorance, greed, unforgiveness, drunkenness. But I want to trust Christ more and more. And I want to ask Christ for his power to do it. And it requires great power. Through God's spirit, verse 16 and 17, in our inner being. So we need the power of God. And as you think about this, ask yourself this question. What rooms in your house of the heart are you keeping locked? He's coming for them. Now listen, when I said that, if you found yourself clutching at your sin, come on, he's your father. If I said that, when I said that, and you said, thank God he's coming. Oh, thank God he's coming. Right? So what about your sex life? Is there something in your sex life under lock and key? We won't let Christ in. He's coming for it. Be of good cheer. Is it alcohol? You love this stuff. He's coming for it. Your employment. Your terrible employer, employee. He's coming. Is it just that, you know, I don't really care about telling anybody about Jesus. I'm terrible at it, and I want to be terrible at it. He's coming for it. Greed, right? You're richy rich and the, all the stuff in the house is bolted shut. And don't you touch my money, Jesus. <laughs> He's coming for it. I'm coming for your sin. We have a utility drawer in our house. Oh my gosh. That thing is dirty. It, sorry, Nicole. It's dirty. 
And it's got stuff from like 1980 whatever in it, you know, our old address book. We don't even use an address book. The book's still in there. I don't even know why. Right? So here's why I tell you that. Like on my Monday morning duties when I clean the house, I do a pretty good job. Wash the clothes, the bathrooms, wash, clean, vacuum. Everything's nice and neat for mom to come home and say, yay. But I never clean that utility drawer. Jesus is coming, if you would, for my utility drawer. <laughs> and yours too. So picture this scene and we're done. You're in your room of your heart. There's the sin and you grab for it. At the same time, Jesus grabs for it. You rip it out of his hands. This is your Christian hope. In time, by his mighty power, you're going to let him take it. And then he's going to go to the next room. <laughs> And that's going to happen over and over and over again until the end. And your heart is finally a happy, full heart. And your home is a place where Jesus Christ dwells fully, updated, fresh, clean. Now that is so good. And don't you have moments when, when you hate your sin? Not because, you know, you're embarrassed by it or you feel like, well... Because you have grieved God. That's where it starts and that's where it ends. And so Paul says, I'm going to pray this prayer. And God is coming for your sin. In the meantime, two things and we're done. The Christian does not think God will love us because we are good. This is C.S. Lewis. But that God will make us good because he loves us. This is fatherly love. And the second thing, in the meantime, when Satan tempts you to despair and he reminds you of your guilt within, there's only one thing you can do. Upward and you look and see him there who made an end to all your sin. Because the sinless Savior died, your sinful soul is counted free. You might be a rascal, but you are Jesus' rascal. And so God the just is satisfied to look on Jesus. That's the best look, to look on Jesus. Jesus and pardon you and I. Let's, let's pray together. God, I'm thinking in my mind all the sermons I've ever heard on holiness, some of them I've preached. Many of the sermons will say on holiness. And I like what Paul did. It's very attractive. He's not stomping on me. He's telling me that I have a loving father. And he's telling me that, in, if you would, he's praying to that loving Father. And he wants Jesus to come into our homes and just continually do that great remodel. That forever, if you would, or eter- in, time, in time reconstruction and updating of my life, our life in Christ. So first, thank you that you're that interested in us. And second, thank you that holiness is much bigger than just the seen world. And far bigger than any advantage we might personally gain from being personally holy. That our holiness matters to the cosmos. Because your glory should not just be here, but it should be everywhere. The invisible world as well. So we're very, very concerned about your glory here. Help us to be equally concerned about your glory um, in that unseen realm. So may our holiness that's rooted in Jesus by your mighty power, may it shake the cosmos for your glory. 
And God, we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.